What's up? It's been a little while. Thanks for listening to The Press. I'm Darnay Tripp. It is good to be back. It, uh, the last episode was a little under a year ago, which I'm more than a little ashamed to admit. But that's kind of how things have gone. It's been uh, it's been quite a last year. A lot of things have happened and did not expect to be away as long as I was. But again, that's just kind of how things went. The last one was right before Thanksgiving. Uh, before the Apple Cup and then the holidays come and then another kind of busy stretch at my now former job in Spokane at Creme 2 and had some ideas for getting it going during the spring and then I did a documentary and so that took up a lot of time and energy and didn't leave much time for the press which was unfortunate it had been in the back of my mind the entire time and was looking forward to getting back to it and uh, now I have um which is cool. I'm excited about it. I, you know, spent some time trying to figure out the best way to do it so that it is more sustainable so that we don't have year long uh, breaks. So there will be more episodes coming, uh, which I'm excited about. But it's been a cool last, you know, especially the last six months. Last year has been great. But doing the documentary, you can check it out. It's an hour long. It's called Fight Town. It's about a group of guys that, um, and uh, a group of fighters, I should say, that that kind of got a gym go at an MMA gym in Spokane and have had a ton of success, kind of a, a crazy amount of success for a town the size of Spokane. And they've had some highs and lows in, in their path. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a, uh, a documentary. You don't, you have to be a, uh, an MMA fan or a UFC fan to enjoy. I, I hope there's a little bit of everything for, uh, anybody that just likes kind of a good story and they've, they've got a great story. And so it was cool doing that. It was a really rewarding experience. My first documentary, and, and people seem to like it. You can check that out on, on YouTube, on the Creme 2 YouTube fa- page. It's called Fight Town. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of a cool project to check off the list and was kind of my last hurrah in Spokane. I, after six and a half years, I decided to step away. And for uh, professional and personal reasons, her name is Laura. Uh, I decided it was good to head down to Southern California and see what's next, uh, figure out life on the personal front, and then had some good connections and some avenues to explore on the professional side of things as well. And so that's been exciting, a little nerve-wracking, a new challenge, um, but excited to see kind of what direction everything goes and, and where everything leads. It felt like the right time to kind of take a risk and to get out there and shake things up a little bit, make use of these contacts, and just see what happens. And uh, so it's been fun. Uh, it's been nice having a little bit of downtime, but in the back of your brain the whole time, you're, you're trying to figure out what's next and uh, what path to take. Um, so definitely miss Spokane, miss the people I worked with, was part of a great team, was super, super fortunate to have six and a half years there. It was just one amazing experience after another and co- kind of culminating with the documentary. I mean, how many... Um, you know, opportunities are there to just go into your boss's office and say, hey, I want to do this. And they green light it and it becomes reality. That's that was a lot of fun. And so that kind of was symbolic of what the experience is like in, in Spokane. But now it's time for something new and the weather's beautiful in San Diego and uh, excited to um, just kind of get out there, get myself out there and see what the next chapter looks like. And the cool thing about being down here now is my parents are in Los Angeles through the holidays and uh, I have another brother up there with his wife and two kids and so get to see them uh, and we're going to be up there this weekend and so I thought you know what 
kind of made a big leap here. Uh, who better to go to than your dad when you're kind of trying to wrap your brain around where you're at? And I, of course, wanted to have him on for a while. I'm glad we finally got a chance to connect with this and, and for me to pick his brain as well. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. We got into some cool stuff. I got a chance to learn some stuff about him that I hadn't known and then obviously um, you know, go a little bit more in depth about his experience and and how he's gotten to where he is. Uh, so it was fun to do that with him. And it's great to be back. Uh, again, this has been on my mind really uh, for the entirety of the last year. Like, when am I going to bring it back? Who am I going to talk to? Uh, how are we going to make it work and, and make it a little bit more consistent? And I, I think we'll be able to do that, and I'm excited about it. Um, but mostly excited to have had a chance to talk to my dad and, and for you to have a chance to listen to it. Hope you enjoy. I was thinking about it um, yesterday. I was like, we could just do it in person when I'm up there <laughs> this weekend. I was like, I'm going to see him in two days, but it always is so busy when we're all together. So I figured this makes the most yeah. sense. And I've been wanting to do this for a while. And um, now thinking about my situation being um, unemployed here in Southern California and you're here in Los Angeles, it kind of works out nicely. Yeah, it is amazing. It, it was funny just thinking about my situation and uh yeah like i said i'd want to have you on and i figure this is kind of a, a good way to kill two birds with one stone because i was like i can get some fatherly advice out of the deal and uh like i said <laughs> I, I'd, I'd been wanting to have you on anyway and so um it, it was thinking about where i'm at and leaving spokane and being in san diego and part of the reason this is fun is because i get to see you guys for the next couple months uh but the thing that kind of surprised me was I mean, you guys obviously were supportive. A lot of people were supportive. That wasn't necessarily a shock, but it was like universal across the board. Everybody was like, yes, you leaving a good job, taking this risk is a good idea. And I figured somebody would have some pause somewhere along the way, but that hasn't really been the case. And I yeah, guess it kind of like, I mean, it has been great. And it kind of demonstrated to me that like there's, for whatever reason, people like are into that sort of thing or into the the taking of a risk and making a leap. And, and, and that kind of surprised me. Like uh, I, you, you have experience doing this sort of thing, obviously. Like mm. what, what have you found in your situations when you're kind of going out on a limb and there is like a real risk there, but people kind of seem to, I don't know if admires the word, but kind of admire that. You know what, 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 uh, motivated me was I think it's my job, my personal job to be a good steward of my gifts, to develop what uh, I think I've been given. And so that was really what motivated my, my decision that I felt like I was in a situation where I had gone as far as I could go in that situation, loved all the people that I was working with, loved the security there and I could have potentially stayed there the rest of my life, but I, I felt like it was not maximizing, uh, the things that I'm good at. And I think no one can, no one can do that for me. I have to make the decision to do that myself. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but it has worked out fabulously. I did it when I was a lot older than you. And people would say, man, this is a time where you should be just wanting security, not a new venture. But I'm very glad I stepped into the void 
I when when I was thinking about talking to you and thinking about the situation you were in when you kind of took the leap, um, you mentioned kind of being in a place where there was some stability because that you know growing up that wasn't the case. Like you, you and mom probably had finally gotten your legs under you a little bit financially. You had to put all us through school and. I know that was difficult, and at that point, I was probably the only one in high school. Most everybody else was through college, and you guys kind of have these things figured out. I mean, like you said, that that probably wasn't the most comfortable time to then put yourself out there and be like, okay, let's let's hope this works and run the risk of putting ourselves in another situation where uh, things are pretty tight. Yeah, that's why I think that you have to uh, look at why you are thinking of making such a decision. Because if you're just, if you're just saying uh, things are now uh, regular, predictable, easy, we're finally in a place where life is, is good. If that's what you're looking for, then you'd never ever make a move. Because you, get, you, you, you will tend to work yourself into a position where things, things are working. Uh, I just thought that uh, if I didn't uh, chase the use of my abilities, I would look back with massive amount of regret. And um, I just wasn't able to maximize the use of those gifts and abilities where I was. And so you have to say, what do I, what do I most value in, in life? Do I, just value comfort. Well, if you do that, you probably you're probably going to make the safe choices, and you may not accomplish much. Or do I do I really want to um, make use of the things that I now know are the words I always use are my gifts and my abilities? Because you come to a certain point of, of life where you know what you're good at, and you know what you're not good at, and I don't want anybody to tell me that I can't, I can't use what I'm good at, or I don't want to be in a situation where I've, I've done as much as I'm going to do there, and I can't continue to develop what I'm good at. And so that's why, why you make the decision. It's just about predictability, regularity, or comfort. No one would ever make that kind of decision. You just say, well, it's stupid. You got it all. And the situation you were in, I mean, you were counseling, you were at uh, Westminster, you're doing the seminary thing. How, how did it, and the risk was then going off on your own and starting Paul Tripp Ministries, essentially. Obviously, you had seen people do that. This wasn't like a foreign idea necessarily, but how did it kind of materialize in your mind? Was there like a, a moment where the light bulb came on and you're like, oh, wait, there, there is, there might be a possibility where I could do this on my own and, and make this happen? Because I think it's sometimes it's it's like even if it's right in front of you, it takes a conversation or witnessing something to be like, oh wait, no, this is something I can do as well, you know. Well, uh, two things for me. One, I was I was offered a position that was very attractive in terms of I could set the agenda, but it was largely administrative, which is not the sweet spot of my gift. So I had that temptation to take that and I could stay where I was, be more in control. Uh, so that was the first thing. And then uh, I had the person who is now 
manages my 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 life basically, Steve Sarkissian, <laughs> who who came to me and said, "Look, I I think he, he had, we had talked some, and he knew that I was I was thinking about the idea." He said, "Somebody who can manage the details, and I'll be that person." And so all of a sudden, that made it seem to me doable because one of the things that's holding me is if I launch out of my own, all of the logistics of setting up events and book contracts, because I, I knew my life would ba- basically be doing the circuit speaking and writing. I mean, there's just so many details of logistics and arrangements and contracts. I thought, I'm going to be doing that so much, I'm not going to have time to prepare to speak or to write. So when when he came to me and said, uh, look, I'm I'm willing to put my insurance company in the hands of my son-in-law. I've been planning to do that anyway, and that will free me up to use my business ability to handle all the details of what you want to do. Then all of a sudden, I could see that there was a there was a, a ramp that could make this doable. Now, the the big question was how how would all of that get get funded? Hmm. And if I could tell a bit of a story. Um, Whenever you do this kind of thing, you 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 have to be careful. You don't make did this work or did this not assessment too quickly. It's sort of like when we planted a vegetable garden and you know we wanted all you guys to help us and we dug a furrow and we put beans down the row and we covered up covered it up with the dirt and watered it. Uh, Nicole, your sister came out. The next morning said it didn't work. <laughs> and I think that's what happens sometimes with these decisions. We make our assessment too soon. So we we do this thing, and our first big, in quotes, event is in New England. And um, we arrive at the event, and there are 25 people. <laughs> and... Uh, the youngest of those was, I don't know, went to high school with God. Uh, and I'm just thinking, I have made the worst decision in my life. This is just craziness. This, And it's in, in those moments, it's very tempting to second guess your, your decision. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't long before, we're getting bigger crowds and we're getting more uh, invitations. And when it, when it peaked, I was getting 600 invitations a year Hmm. to speak places around the world. Um, So those, those two things uh, first, that I was offered something that was very tempting, but would have taken me away from what I think I do best. And then I had someone say to me, look, I think I can help you. What was the, I mean, you mentioned kind of the situation showing up to an event and basically nobody's there. What was the prevailing fear when you set off? Was it that, that just people wouldn't be interested in the events or was there something else that kind of gave you some pause or was lingering in the back of your mind? Like this could be the reason this whole idea falls apart and I just need to go back to what I was doing before. Well, it was, it was, it was this thought you can have the, the best restaurant in the world with the best service in the world. 
the best food in the world, the best chef in the world, if no one comes, it's not going to work. <laughs> and all of a sudden I thought, nobody, nobody knows me. Uh, yeah, I have these gifts. I know what I'm able to do. And those 25 people were blown away at the end of the weekend. But uh, how, how are we going to connect to this larger world that, uh, again, can begin to say, yeah, this, what this guy has to offer is worth it and we want to we wanna participate. How long did it take before you were gaining some traction? I, I think it was probably um, a couple years along the way we, we had, we did things that, that just didn't work. I did a daily radio program that was very, very cool. Uh, it was little bits of teaching with, uh, current music. Uh, I, I chose all the music and it, I mean, it was really, really very cool, but it was massively expensive. And, uh, it took an, and just an inordinate amount of amount of time. And after a while, we just thought given the return, what we're investing, in this is just not, not worth it. Um, so it, it, you know, you, again, you, it, that's just a matter of finding your way. And I just don't, I just don't think any of those things are failures. Hmm. I just think they're necessary steps to success. I, I'm not a prophet. I can't predict what's going to happen. I don't know, always know exactly how people are going to respond to something. And you just have to try things. And I think it's not fair. Failure is when, uh, I haven't listened well, I've made prouder, arrogant decisions, or I've made promises that I didn't keep, or I've been lazy and irresponsible. That's failure. But to try something and to put everything you have into it to make your best responsible decisions and it doesn't work isn't failure. That's just that's just part of the way that every human being grows and learns and gets to the next place. It's funny that you and said, so we had we, we had ahead. those. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I, that's kind of that's been the challenge for me is formulating this idea of where it all goes from here and is it the traditional route is it something different and it's funny uh uh ethan talked to me um one of another one of your kids um yesterday and kind of out of the blue called me and gave me this great pep talk about um ideas i should try and that sort of thing and then all of a sudden my mind is thinking that way and it was the same thing when i started doing the podcast it's like I, I don't know if I'm just by nature too much of a planner and it's like I want everything to be perfectly in line before kind of taking that first step or uh, just I'm probably some level of like overthinking or over evaluating it. And then there's the other side of it, too, where it's like I just want to try one thing at one time. And it's like, well, I don't maybe I won't email these people and instead I'll focus on this other thing because I want to see if that works. But I mean, I I get too caught up in. Uh, basically planning, like you're saying, having an idea, having a vision of how it's all going to go, where at the end of the at the end of the day, you just don't know. I mean, there's no way of knowing how these things are going to come together and what's going to work and what's not and who's going to be the person or the contact that helps you or what email will lead to some other thing. And I think that's what often stop, stops me in my tracks is 
trying to make sure the conditions and the climate is perfect before starting everything and then also um, being afraid of starting this other thing because I want to make sure I'm putting everything into another where you can function at the same time doing those things and that might be how something comes together the way it's supposed to. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, there's a couple of responses. One is you talk to any older, successful person, none of them will say, I could have written my story. None of them. There's always, you always end up someplace where you, you didn't know you'd be. I'm, I'm, I'm in a townhouse right now in Beverly Hills. Uh, I can be anywhere because I basically live the life of a writer you know, who would have ever thought? I had no idea this is where this thing was going to end up. And now I don't need to travel as much as I once did because we do big live stream events. I mean, it's just, I, no, one, no one could have predicted that. The second thing I would say is I think that people who get up every day and work eventually bump into success. You just got to work. And so I determined I was going to write every day. It doesn't, doesn't matter if I write five pages that were horrible. That's great. That's five pages I don't ever have to write again. Uh, and just 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 write and just be willing to be on the road way more than I wanted to be on the road. Just, just willing to work because I think that it's uh, – you're going to have to have some time to dream. But you can't spend all your time dreaming. You just have to work at something. And one of those things that you're working at is going to catch fire. Uh, that's just the way it works. Hardworking people end up being successful. And uh, I just determined I was going to work hard. That's one thing I can do. You could, I may not have a paycheck. I may not know what, what direction I'm going in, but I can get up today and work. Mm-hmm. And I just determined I was going to do that. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you ever think about, how things would be if you hadn't taken the risk? Like if you just hadn't done that, if you just kept doing what you're doing? Does the word psycho killer work? <laughs> no, I think I, I, I seriously, I think I, I, I'd be now living with lots of regret. And I, one of the things that, that, that uh, happened to me is I was in a situation where, because it was, a combination of a group of institutions working together. I was doing 70% of what I didn't really want to do. And I didn't think I was good at to do the 30% that I was good at. Hmm. And I just want to change those percentages. (laughs) And, and my commitments were all the same. Uh, I was just, I wanted to establish a new vehicle to do what, I thought was important to do and to use my gifts and, and abilities. And I wanted to be more in control of those percentages. I think if I hadn't done that, I would today still be very frustrated. It was very frustrating. No, no anger or bitterness toward anybody. Uh, I left my situation with great relationships all around and it was great to be able to say to people, I didn't leave there because there was 
institutional or personal or relational breakdown. Uh, but I was, I was frustrated because uh, I was doing so much of what I did think that uh, was a good use of my, my time. And I wanted just to flip those percentages. <clears throat> That's a good way of putting it. I, I, I guess you you probably look at the pivotal moment as when you started the ministry, and that makes sense. But I always think about it like when I think about uh, where things kind of change for you. I, I always think about going down to Florida and you writing the first book. That's that's the time that always comes to mind for me. Yeah, I think that's I, and I think uh, so. Um, there, there are two stages here. One is when the lights come on about what you're intended to do with your life. You know, you, you, you find, you find a, a football player who says at the end of the season, this was like what I was meant to do. Well, he, he's not saying I just discovered that yesterday. Hmm. He probably discovered that in junior high school. So there's the moment back when where you thought, yeah, this is what, I'm meant to do. I, I began to write and writing was more natural to me and words came down on the page and, uh, first couple of books got a, a pretty good reception. And so that was, that was, Oh, wow. I didn't know that I'd be doing this. This is something I should be doing. Um, so that came way before down, well, it was even before Florida. And then uh, the later decision was, now that I know what I should be doing, now that that's clear, uh, when I launched on my own, I had written five books. Now it's clear that this should be a major piece of my life. How do I need to position myself now to use, to pursue what I now understand I should be doing? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it was in, it was in, it was in two, two stages. By the time I made the decision to launch out on my own, I had a clear understanding of what I should be doing. And the fact that I've been able to, to focus on that meant that every, every book had a larger audience and uh, I was able to surround myself with people that would help me to build audience. And now every book I write is a, is a bestseller. I mean, the last book, the last book that came out was a bestseller before it came out just on, just on pre-orders. Well, I think that's just understanding your gifts and just working at them Mm -hmm. and just staying with it. And eventually an audience finds it and yeah did you was there ever any idea and this isn't uh like a recent thing like going back growing up in Toledo I mean I I you know you've always done one thing basically various you know types of one thing but you've always essentially done one thing you know at least since I've been around um did you and you went to Bible college like it seemed like that was always the thing. Was there ever any other idea for you career-wise, anything that you thought about pursuing, like another direction you, you maybe consider going? So the, the story is that I was very, I was raised through the, 
the 60s and 70s and uh, cataclysmic time culturally and uh, politically. This will be funny, but I was very attracted to the sort of countercultural hippie kind of movement. And a lot of the new new uh, journalism that was coming out that was not mainstream, and so I was really I was really interested in journalism. Hmm. And the only reason I went uh, to a Christian college is because um, my mom and dad said we want you to do this for a couple of years, then you can go wherever you want to go. Uh, so my plan was 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 not to pursue what you know normally is called a ministry life it was just um they thought look if you're going to do that you know you're going to go to pursue journalism be helpful for you to know your faith why don't you just do this for a couple years so that's what that's what i was willing to do and it was it was there that my sense of direction changed but that was not the original plan I, I'm surprised that's never, I never heard you, I don't think I, you've ever told me that, that you were thinking about going, as somebody that ended up going into journalism, that that was the idea that you had. No, it, it was, and I, I think that um, my, I think that's a reason, if you look at my, my writing, it's, on one hand, it's theological, but it's topical. And I think that's that that uh, looking at something, uh, taking a slice of something and uh, unpacking it, and, uh, and I'm just I'm just reporting on a particular perspective <laughs> on life. <laughs> Did you want to be like a, a newspaper writer? I I think yeah I, I thought in those those days. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that was the, the thing. They were the most powerful mm -hmm. people out there. Uh, you know, television news was, was CBS, ABC, NBC, 23 minutes from six to six thirty, uh, minus commercials. And, uh, you know, the, you know, if you talk, you talk about the whole water, all those, those uh, cultural moments were driven by newspaper journalism. Hmm. So, if you thought about that, that's 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 what you you would do. And I was because I was in Columbia, South Carolina. Outside of Columbia was Fort Jackson. That was the place where uh, soldiers would go for their last training before they went to Vietnam. So, I was in a real. real uh, cultural, culturally uh, chaotic place, and uh, yeah, is that that was my my thought uh, when when uh, the students took over the University of South Carolina in a student uh, anti-Vietnam protest. Uh, my mom called to make sure I wasn't in jail. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I would have, I would have thought that if I could, could, uh, find my way into, uh, journalism that I would, 
I would love that. Did you ever take probably be newspapers? Did you ever take part in the the activism and the protests and that stuff that was going on? Oh, I, oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, huh. yeah. And uh, I had just these amazing moments. I once, uh, I was I was in in um, downtown uh, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and. I was talking with a group of soldiers. And I used to, I used to hand out what was called a Hollywood free, free paper, and they were, they were Christian countercultural newspapers, and uh, I, I'd hand them out until I had, I had no more, and then I just, I would stick it out in front of a, a soldier, and he would grab a hold of it, and I'd use that just as a way of talking to him, and then I'd take the paper back. So I'm doing this with a group of guys and they started asking me questions. And so uh, before long, there was 30 guys there firing questions at me. So I stood up on a, on a, like a park bench. And before long, there were like 70 or 80 guys around me. And uh, then then military police came up and said, we had to, we had to split because we were blocking traffic. Hmm. But it was just that kind of an environment. I mean, yeah. there were just uh, many conversations, many protests all the time. It was it was like, you know, the, the more conservative people just felt like America was coming unglued. Yeah. But it was it was very exciting and very engaging. And I think that's that's the whole thing that stimulated. I was I was part of student protests in high school. We took over the high school. <laughs> um and I mean, literally shut it down. Uh, so I was involved with that before um, uh, even getting to college. I think it's maybe part of what mom and dad wanted me to go to a conservative Southern school. They, they're hoping they, to rescue me. <laughs> it's, fun, uh, it's funny because I've, I've heard you told, tell all the stories of like the funny kind of more prank type stuff that you've done or just kind of doing little things to kneel uh, to needle administrators, but not like serious activism. I've never heard you talk about that side of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure why that is, but yeah, is definitely there. And, and just this, there is something in me that uh, I just hated uh, I didn't hate rules, but I hated needless rules. I can give you an example. So in those days, high schools had a dress code. And dress code high school I was going, there was a big suburban school, a couple thousand kids. And one of the things was you you couldn't wear wear sandals and you couldn't go without socks. I mean, it seemed ridiculous. <laughs> So I, I cut off my socks so they were just at the top of my shoes because they didn't have those kind of socks in those days. And I got called in for not having socks on, and I, I gleefully took off my shoes and showed them that I was wearing socks, which drove the principal crazy. That night I got the idea that I could take my – I was then wearing Basswegian penny loafers because those are the cool shoes – and I, I took a marker and drew drew on them and cut them into sandals. But they weren't really sandals; mm-hmm. they were penny loafers. Mm-hmm. And then I, 
I put on those socks and I drew the marker, the holes, and I cut the socks to fit all, all the holes. So it looked like I was just, I was wearing sandals, mm-hmm. but they were shoes. And with socks so on. I got called into the office again. And uh, I was able to demonstrate that these weren't ex- sandals. They were just penny loafers that had been cut up and that I did have socks on. And it started a, a, a thing that happened. Everybody was cutting up their shoes <laughs> in high school. <laughs> I didn't know that part, but I didn't know that you started a movement. I, I'd heard that story before, but I didn't realize yeah. that. Uh, so, yeah, so it started the- with my friends and then people started looking at us and yeah, before long. And within, within two or three months, they just gave up on the dress code. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as they probably should, that's funny though, especially back then. I mean, things are still yeah. a bit conservative now, but when you like you, I kind of mentioned you've done, I mean, you worked for school, you've done counseling seminary and now writing and traveling and speaking in those early days when you first kind of went in that direction, did you have a vision? Did, was there like a, a dream job, so to speak? No, no, there, there wasn't. Uh, uh, in fact, when I graduated from uh, college, my, my thought was, I don't, I don't know enough to help anybody, and I probably know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> <clears throat> so I went to seminary uh, for two reasons. This is, this is very honest. One, because... I could get a military deferment and I wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. Hmm. That made seminary very attractive. Yeah. Uh, and then the other reason was I just felt like I needed to know more. And um, I, I, but by then I, I had some kind of thought that it would be journalism. It'd be some form of ministry, but I had no idea what that, what that meant. And even even after graduating from seminary, I ended up in northeast Pennsylvania, basically living in a rural farm situation. And we we would host guys coming out of prison and try to help them to get their their lives together. So I was doing something alternative. Still didn't have any idea where this thing was going to go. Hmm. A lot has obviously changed. So when was that? Like when were you kind of um, setting on in that? kind of career path that would have been early so, 70s so i graduated from seminary in 1975 we we moved up to northeastern pennsylvania uh, and as we were there there was a little group, there's a group of people getting together and they were thinking of uh starting a church and so uh church we were involved in approached me and said why don't you just travel up there on sundays you've got a seminary background you can sort of provide some teaching for them and that was the, that was the plan we did that for three for almost three years and i just thought that i would do that and i would go back i was i was working uh three ten hour days just so we would have money to live uh, at a factory that sold uh, CB radios and other kind of equipment, I was packing boxes. And during in the spring, I would work for the owners as his gardener. He had a big piece of property, 
uh, and that, and I just said, I don't want to work full time. Let me work three 10 hour days. I'll, and he let me do that. So I worked Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then the rest of the week off. And uh, we started going to Scranton, and and when we were getting to the end of that, they they asked us if we would stay on, hmm. and that's how we we got there, and we were we were there basically uh, helping plant and then uh, lead that church for eleven years. So, uh... so this is this is this is what I meant about who could write that story. You just have no idea. <laughs> yeah. You just you just have no idea where things are going to go. I had I had no idea where where life would would lead. Just just none. Yeah. So you know, obviously, a lot has changed in uh, every uh, you know aspect of life in the last thirty forty years, and uh, certainly that's had an impact on um, ministry and the job and he, how people get into it and the perception of it and why you know maybe even to why people want to get into ministry, whatever kind of avenue they take. How, what's the biggest difference now? If, you know, if if you were thinking about getting into it in 2018, like good, bad, indifferent. How do you think it's changed now for somebody that decides I want to enter into ministry in some way, shape or form? Well, I think there's, I think there's, I like to say there's good and bad. I mean, one thing, everything is just so ridiculously costly. Now education is just out of control, costly, uh, I mean, just if you're a young group and just to say you want a, a, a building to, to meet in, all those expenses are ridiculously costly. The good thing is there are a lot more movements to help people uh, start up uh, in, in ministry. Uh, they call them church planting networks, but they're basically uh, startup movements uh, and They've done a lot of research. They can help you. They can help you financially. They can help you to understand your community. So there's there's a lot of research that were never never available to me. Uh, we had we had no idea how to build what we had started in Scranton because we had none of those help. So there's a lot of of help available, and there's a lot of people like me now who want to make an investment in the younger generation. I I meet regularly with 10, I think it's now 11 guys individually who are young in ministry, who are, who are starting up. And I'm just, I'm just there to pour into their hearts, give them whatever wisdom I, ha- I can have, have some place they can interact with somebody who is not in the middle of his first rodeo. And I have a commitment to that. And there's a lot of guys my age who have the same commitment. So there's a, there is a lot more help. But it's never easy. It's never easy to find your way. It's, it's, uh, there are a lot of doubts and fears that accompany that, and you can't, you can't allow yourself to be ruled by fear. You can't allow yourself to be ruled by doubt. You can't call failure things that aren't failure. They're just circumstances that, that happen and part of the learning process. I mean, one of the ways I say it is failure in the wrong sense of, that word is a necessary step to success. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's writing down the answer two and two equals three that will f- forever f- enforce in your mind when you finally learn that two and two is only ever four. <laughs> you just have to get there. Yeah. And 
so I think there's a lot more more help, but you're you're always going to have those moments where you think, "What have I done? Yeah. Uh, I stepped away for some some something, and is this is this going to work?" Uh, I, I'm involved in a situation right now where just a young man has had the rug pulled out from underneath him. He's a young, gifted, bright guy, and he'll be okay. But I know he must be thinking, well, what in the world is going on? How am I going to make it through this? Yeah. And and those are just, that's just life. We don't live in a perfect world. This is not paradise. And the people around you don't get up in the morning thinking, how can we make uh, Darnay or Paul successful? <laughs> they just don't. And uh, because of that, things are in your way. There are always obstacles in in the way and always questions you can't answer. That's why you have to say, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm committed to use the abilities I've been given, and I'm going to do that by just working hard and not not try to figure out the future in ways that no one no one can ever, ever figure out. Now, the, I want to say one other thing. Uh, I was, I was always committed to surrounding myself with good advisors. Uh, I, I had that in Scranton. I had older people in ministry that I could call and talk to that just walked me through some really difficult things. I had that when I left CCEF, uh, I immediately called when, that decision was afloat. Five people that know me, and asked them to help me think through this. People that I respected and trusted, who I thought had some wisdom, and I have that still today, uh, because I think that uh, life, anybody's life, is a community project. You only have you only have a limited ability to be objective. And none of us know ourselves as well as we think we do. Uh, if if you walk around thinking no one knows me better than I do, then you're going to be you're going to be closed off to people who say things about you that you have you haven't thought yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have pockets of blindness, and so we need we need voices in our lives. We need people who interrupt our private conversations. And so I, th- I think an ingredient to, to this for me has always been, who are those people? Um, I want to invite those people into my life so that I'm not trying to do this just by myself. Yeah. One, one thing that's been fun about all this is, um, and some of it's been <clears throat> by necessity with the health stuff that's popped up and you also, you know, at this stage in life, probably don't need to be still on a plane 47 weekends out of the year. I mean, that got to be, you seemed to like it and enjoy it. And it seemed uh, like something you handled well. But at some point, you're going to have to kind of pivot a little bit. And yeah. you've done that the last few years. And you've cut down on your traveling. And you guys have done a good job of utilizing social media. You mentioned kind of live streams. And so that's been kind of fun because, I, you know, I'm obviously in this world. And we're all seeing everything change and adapting to it. And um you know, not everybody's parents are uh, right in line with that or, or can teach them about one thing or some tool or whatever. Um, but how how much of a game changer has that been 
uh, for you, again, partially by necessity, but also just kind of adapting to the world we're living in and reaching more people as a result of it. Because uh, one way or another, it's something you'd, you'd have to do. And if you didn't, it would limit your scope to some extent. So, so I would say maybe 10, 11 years ago, it just became very clear to me that the way humanity would communicate was going to massively change. And that if I was going to have influence, I had to be on the cusp of that. And so with, with, with no money, the first, the first real hire I made was a young kid who seemed to be a social media expert. And I said, can't pay you full time. We'll pay you part time. But, uh, if, if you prove your worth, it'll get full time real quick. And we started just building our, our media presence. And so much of what's happened uh, since has been driven by new media and uh, open up possibilities. Uh, you know, when I experienced some, some sickness, uh, it was, I was able to influence masses amount of people without leaving my living room. And, you know, last year we had uh, 24 million individual visits to our Facebook page. Hmm. 24 million. Yeah. That's, that's craziness to me. Uh, and, you know, I have, I have a large Twitter following and, and, you know, by, by noon, I'll, I'll just check out and, 50, 60,000 people have read, read my tweets. Uh, I get, I get uptight when Christians make fun of social media or present negative light, because I think, I think all those, all those things are just like a screwdriver. You can build stuff with a screwdriver or you can stab somebody in the head with it. It's just a tool. (laughs) And, and I just decided this was a powerful tool that, that we, could, we could use. I just, we just recently begun the process of hiring three more people because the, the activity is so great. So I'll give you an example. This is how these tools are amazing. I wrote a Advent Christmas devotional last year. Well, it, it did very, very well. Uh, was number 41 of all books on Amazon during the Christmas Christmas season, which is crazy. But it's seasonal. And most of the, most of the audience out there didn't know it existed because it happens fast. So we started, we started putting out on social media uh, because we're getting near the Christmas season again, just announcements about this book and videos and all this kind of stuff. Yesterday at my office, we were getting five orders a minute for that book. Uh, so much so, uh, we, we just can't handle that, that volume. But that's because we brought the message to people. Uh, and what social media does, I think is absolutely brilliant, whether we're talking political or entertainment or ministry, 
its brilliance is it lowers the first step for people. You don't have to buy a book. You don't have to uh, go to a conference. You don't have to go to a political rally. <laughs> you don't have to make a commitment you're not sure you want to make because it's just there a click away. Mm. And you can begin to uh, be an audience to something without making bigger commitments. And then you're, you're willing to make those bigger commitments because you've seen enough, you've heard enough that you're ready to make that commitment. I just think that's, that's, that's brilliant. Listen, listen it, there was a day when the only, only way you could get me is go to a conference at a cost or buy a book. Mm-hmm. And now it doesn't, it's not that way at all. I just got, uh, my birth birthday was November 12th and I just got a really nice, uh, email from a group of people in China, <laughs> just thanking me for my impact on them. China. I've never been to China. You haven't, you, you haven't been to China. That's so that I just assumed when you said I've, I just assumed these were people that you had uh, spoken to face to face just because I'm so used to being in every single bizarre place imaginable. Well, totally. I, I, the closest I've come is Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but mainland China never. And these are, these are people that have through social media gotten me and because of that found that I have written things that have been translated into Chinese. And I mean, they, they were talking to me like, we knew one another. <laughs> is it is it more fun? Do you have a preference? I know you, I know you have some affection for the old school way of doing things. You took the role at tenth when I was in, I think late high school and into college, because um, you you know there were some pastoral itches you wanted to scratch after all those years from being away. I, do you do you have a preference, or do they each kind of present? Uh, certain uh, perks and benefits that you kind of enjoy equally across the board? Well, well, so it's important for me to say this. I don't think in ministry anything will replace the church. I think that regular community, which is so valuable, so important, being known, being loved, being part of a community that guides you, protects you, takes care of you, loves you, provides for you, I think that's very, very important having the regular teaching of somebody that's face to face who you can get to know a little bit and trust a little bit. I don't think there's anything that replaces that. So what I do, I try to do in support of that. Mm -hmm. I know that it's not a replacement of that. And, uh, for the first 10 years, we never hosted, uh, any event ourselves because we wanted them to be done in support of the church. Uh, because you know, I'm going to go in. I'm going to. I'm going to create a lot of trouble because I'm going to help you to see and experience things about yourself you didn't know they were there that probably need to be fixed. But by three o'clock on Saturday, I'm on a plane. Yeah. Those people need help. Yeah. And it's that long-term institutional thing that provides help. Look, I love the fact that now around uh, the world there are these urgent care facilities. They're really great Mm -hmm. because you can go in there. You don't need an appointment and somebody who's qualified can check you out and give you a sense of what's going on, but they do not replace a hospital (laughs) that long-term care. They'll never provide. And so that's what I think I do. I, 
I can really uh, get at areas and I can become an expert in things that be hard for a pastor to be an expert in because he's a generalist mm. uh, that really is is in support of what he does, but he'll never he'll, he'll never replace uh, that. And that's why I think even in this this isn't interesting that even in this generation we're now in, more books are sold every year hmm. than were sold the year before. Yeah, and more churches are being planted than have ever been planted before. And Amazon is now open uh, opening up three hundred brick and mortar bookstores. <laughs> so, so uh, maybe we're we're realizing it's not an either or; it's a both and, mm-hmm. and that that the different approaches meet a different set of needs. Yeah, I'm not. For example, I'm going to write. Uh, a best-selling book on parenting that's going to be read by a massive amount of people and give them new direction. I'm never going to walk through them how to apply that with their children. Yeah. I'll never do that. But someone needs to help them mm-hmm. because I, I know we, we get those, those calls and we have to direct people someplace. Okay. I get it. I really get it. But I've got a seven year old, this is going on. I don't know how to do this. And so there's, there's, there's something else that's needed to help people with those moments, and I think that's what the church is, is about. Do you have, a, do you have a, a thing you would like to try, like in, in having the conversations about reaching people, and you've done some cool events, and we did the thing with the guys from the Eagles earlier this year, but is there maybe an idea that's clicked from developing technology or something you've seen other people do that you're like, we haven't quite figured out how to do that, but that would be cool. Well, we're, we're, we're going to do some more uh, media things this year. We've, uh, we've leased the studio for five years, which we're now on the process of remodeling, remodeling. It'll be ready in the middle of February. I'm going to do a lot more uh, podcast kinds of things. Some, um, which I told you to and, do a long time ago, by the way. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and they're they're going to. We're thinking about a lot of other ways of using that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure where all that's going to go, but uh, I really think the value of of that that presence and um, just I think just culturally, we're just at the edge of knowing how to best make use of all these, these tools. <laughs> this is, this is a little bit of a side, but, it, but it's an example of this. So, you know, we're, we're, we, we became aware of the word drone. It became in our vocabulary. Right. And, and you know, so people are figuring out ways of using drones. Maybe we could use drones for pizza delivery, or maybe <laughs> we could use drones for, for, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm. I just shot a video series, and over my shoulder is the Ben Franklin Bridge, and we hired drone pilots just to fly under the bridge and around and over the bridge, and mm. until the the aquatic police came and oh wow, because they didn't they didn't know what was happening to the bridge. Uh, but but who would have thought? Think about this for a moment. No one when when we first began to think about drones would have thought that 
Radio City Music Hall does a Christmas extravaganza in New York City. It's a New York City tradition. People from all over the world come to see this. This year, the final scene will be a black backdrop with 100 mini drones doing this light display. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what? Yeah. So that, that just shows, you know, the, the, the potential of these medias just to do just amazing things. And, you know, I think what I'm doing right now is rudimentary in terms of I'm doing the same old thing. I'm just using these platforms. But maybe there's ways of doing very different things that would even be more effective. Yeah. And, and I, I, again, I just I'm just open to to all of those, those possibilities, uh, given that caveat that I gave you to know that I'm never going to provide in, in the world of spirituality, I am never going to provide everything that people need. Yeah. I can't provide community and I can't provide long-term care, but I can be used to open your eyes and and I think that's that's my my voice. Uh, if the way I describe what I do is, if life is a big circle, and I'm standing in the middle of that circle, and the glasses I have on are <laughs> biblical glasses, I just turn and look at something else in life from that perspective and write about it. Yeah. And for that, I mean the. People say I'm just going to run things to to write about. Well, no, it's it's just it's just endless. Yeah, there's there's always uh, more stuff to see. Yeah, there's more stuff to see, and you know, uh, it's all about perspective. Human beings are interpreters. You don't live life based on the facts of your experience, based on your interpretation of those facts. And I'm just an interpreter for people, and I interrupt the private conversation and help them to see things in a different way that opens up uh, a sense of personal need, uh, a desire for change, uh, where I can do things better, a sense of the help that God can give them in their lives. I, 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 I don't ever think of myself as writing as an expert, although I, I probably am. I, I write out of my own experience. My most recent book is a book on suffering. It came out of three very, very difficult years in, in my life. Um, and now living with a body that will da be damaged for the rest of my life and living with weakness that I never thought I would have. Well, that's, that's not just my experience. That's an awesome opportunity to speak into the experience of people who are going through the same kinds of things. Yeah. And so I, I try to write in a way that's open and vulnerable that, doesn't stand above people, but stands alongside of side of people. Uh, but I'm only going to be a voice. I'm not going to walk with them. Yeah. I, when you were talking earlier, I, I was thinking you should, and maybe you already have this book and I've just forgotten, but about, uh, you should write about, uh, taking risks and not having a plan for your life and not being afraid to step out the door and that sort of thing. Like there's that as in kind of a, a different, maybe type of, 
obviously there would be gospel related elements to it as well but like from a it's almost more of like a self-help type of thing helping people get motivated to uh, launch into their lives and try something new because i think it's something a lot of people kind of struggle with yeah and i i've i've actually outlined a book about uh just interruptions in life and i don't mean that in terms of suffering but just all the things that that change your direction, change the way you think, and how those are are not obstacles; those are opportunities. Like the thought that I had one day, twelve years ago, maybe this is not the best place to use my gifts. Yeah, that's a thought. When you think it, you think I don't want to have this thought. <laughs> Find because some way to I distract yourself. I, I'm a, I'm afraid of where this thought will take me. <laughs> yeah. That's that's one of those interruptions. Yeah. Uh, and uh, or a parent thinking maybe my child's not okay. Maybe my child needs help, or maybe this is not the best place for me to work, or you know all those things that can be fearful when you think them, but but open up doors of, of opportunity. Yeah. You guys are, are lucky. You guys have a great church. And so this isn't a, a need of yours, but, um, if, uh, if you could pick one, uh, all time Philly athlete to be the pastor of your church, who do you think it would be? And don't say one, don't say Reggie white, because that would be the obvious answer. It doesn't have to be anybody that has any sort of biblical basis. It doesn't have to be Carson Wentz, but based on personality and approach, whose church do you think you'd want to, uh, congregate on a weekly basis? There's, there's two names that, that come to mind. If, if they were going to be, if I knew that, that this is what they're going to do the rest of their life. One is uh, Chris Maragos, who's the captain of the special teams unit of the Eagles, who um, is has been dealing with injuries. Um, he is just a, a very kind, generous, no ego, sincere believer. He who knows his faith and is. Uh, I just think he's going to be, he's going to be used and he's, he's a risk taker. He didn't get a scholarship in college, wasn't drafted in the NFL and has made a career for himself. Now has two Super Bowl rings, pretty, pretty amazing guy. But I think the, the, the bottom of all of that is just a, a rock solid faith. Uh, the other person is, that I, I thought of right away was Jordan Matthews. Hmm. Uh, Jordan is uh, the sweetest man. One of the things that, that I hate about the modern description of a man's man is a word that I think should be in there that's never in there is tender. I think a man's man is tender. Hmm. He's got heart, and he, he can use his strength well. Because he's got heart, he he cares. He's tender, and he can step into needs because he's tender. Jordan's one of those guys. He's just the the sweetest. You just enjoy being being with him. Uh, if you're trying to encourage him, he'll end up encouraging you. And this is a stud. Uh, you know, in in many ways, he's that man's man, hmm. but. There's a there's a tenderness about him that I think is really attractive, and 
uh, I think that's a mandatory ingredient for a, a pastor. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta love the people that you're caring for. You've got to really care for them. You have to have a soft heart, or you just become what I call a theo geek. Uh, you know, you just dispensing distant abstract theology with a little bit of arrogance and it doesn't help anybody. <laughs> I was so, so not Charles Barkley or John Cruck or uh, Daryl Dawkins. <laughs> None of those guys. <laughs> AI, I think well, AI, AI could be a very passionate, uh, he, he'd probably need a good group around him. Um, but uh... yeah. now, Barkley's amazing because Barkley is, is much more of an activist than people know. Mm-hmm. And and he has been he has made very wise investments, so he's got a lot of money. And he is constantly uh, in his community, fueling people's dreams with with his business and money resources. Yeah. Uh, and you know he's he's always going to be crazy and controversial because he likes that. But uh, he's he's uh, really used his his success for other people in ways that I, I don't think gets the press that I get. It's it's uh it's sad that we didn't get to enjoy Reggie White more post retirement. because uh, yeah. uh, if the Minister of Defense set up a church in Philly he could pack out veteran stadium on a weekly basis. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh and he's the guy who who uh leveraged his platform for his for his faith um yeah interesting guy uh, a, a lot of this talking about you is stuff that's like cool but also kind of weird um because again like you didn't you didn't think any of this would happen the way it has and i had i haven't told you this i had an experience like that at the wedding i was just at in lexington kentucky and these things uh tend to follow me around wherever i go because um i'm blessed to share your last name um and so uh obviously in church communities people put that together very quickly and ask the questions and i i say often yes i'm his son um and uh it was at the rehearsal dinner and one of the girls uh the sisters of the bride was telling a story about when her sister just started dating this guy, Sean, a good friend of mine, and they're kind of Facebook stalking one another. And her and Sean's mom connect on Facebook and discover that they're following the same pastor. And that pastor is Paul Tripp. So they're telling the story during the rehearsal dinner, and I'm just sitting there. And they, she sto- And I'm kind of like half listening, half paying attention. And like I hear following the same pastor, and it goes quiet. And I'm like, it clicks and I turn and everybody's kind of looking at me and like I start laughing and everybody starts laughing. And then no joke, a Paul Tripp chant starts at a wedding in Lexington, Kentucky at the rehearsal dinner that I'm at. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like everywhere I go, there's a Paul Tripp chant at this wedding. You're not there. You're not officiating. These people don't know you. I was, think- oh, I was thinking the other day I've, I've been in, I was in Spokane for six and a half years if you and I showed up at a random church on a Sunday, I, I have an, a pretty clear idea who would get stopped more, and it's not me. Yeah, well, you know, again, it's, it's, it is uh, amazing. We, we went to this Anglican church in 
in uh, Sydney, Australia, and I'm just, I'm just, we're just going to slip in one of the back rows and enjoy the service. And well, you know, you just can't, I can't, because I'm going to be recognized because it's a church. Uh, so it's, it is pretty weird. Well, and the mustache doesn't hurt either. I mean, it's good for the brand, and it also makes it a little <laughs> yeah, bit easier right. to spot you. If you were just a generic-looking white guy, you know, you might not have <laughs> have that happen all the time. I, it's funny, though. I remember, and I guess this is probably somebody who counseled or something like that, but I remember being a little kid, and it was me, you, and Nicole at a Chi-Chi's out in the burb somewhere, and somebody stopped you. And so I just got used to that sort of thing happening. And I think at that point, it was because you were probably, you know, helping them on more of a personal level, and then... I remember being at a bison range in the middle of nowhere, Montana, like one of the most remote places I've ever been. And the lady working in the gift <laughs> shop recognizes you. I'm like, this is so crazy, but it's cool. It's cool to see. We, we get a kick out of it. It's fun. Well, this is, I'm, I'm glad we finally did this. And uh, yeah, this is I fun. I am too. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hanging out this weekend. It'll be a good time. It's nice having you guys down in Southern California. Like I said, like I, I need you guys to be around during this time. So it works out nicely. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're blessed to be here at this moment.